Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. It's June 25th, 2015. I'm here at Linfield's Nicholson Library talking to Al McDonald. And Al, our first question we always ask people doing oral history interviews is why wine? Why wine? Well, actually, uh, it was probably more grapes than wine. Uh, I grew up in Michigan uh, and moved out here in 1977. Uh, I graduated from Central Michigan University uh, with a master's degree in psychology and worked um, in Florence uh, running a sheltered workshop for physically handicapped, mentally handicapped individuals. Um, However, the, um, I would say everyone's going to go to the coast this weekend because it's so hot here, (laughs) but the, the problem with the coast is that it's always cool there and so it wasn't quite the summers we were used to. So my wife and I decided that, um, that we didn't want to live on the coast anymore. Uh, so I applied for some jobs here in the Willamette Valley and I didn't get them, but at that same time, her parents uh, thought that maybe, they grew up with a farming background and I grew up in a farming community that perhaps we could buy a farm uh, in the Willamette Valley. Uh, there's a place to raise our kids, essentially, which we didn't have any at the time, but we were planned it had. Uh, so we bought a piece of, uh, so we thought, well, what could we grow? And at that time, that was uh, 1980s, early, well, yeah, 1980, uh, wine grapes were the up and coming new crop, if you will. There weren't very many planted, and not, a lot, not a lot of people knew what the, you know what they were doing so we contacted a um, company out of Salem that specialized in vineyard property mm-hmm. and uh, they had this place for sale uh, in Polk County and it was 250 acres and we um, it had multiple uses so it was also timber and it was mm-hmm. uh, grain and, it, and but there was plenty of spots on the site that were suitable for grapes. We didn't know much about wine other than that we liked to drink uh, an occasional bottle for, you know, if we'd spend three bucks on it, that was <laughs> an expensive bottle of wine. Uh, so we contracted with that group and uh, they, we developed our first planting in 1982, which was 16 acres of uh, Chardonnay and 16 acres of Pinot Noir. The next year we added what we thought were 12 acres of Gewürztraminer it turned out to be only nine, but that's when we found out the management company wasn't quite truthful because they weren't measuring land, but they were charging by it. Um, and there were 36 wineries in the state at that time. Uh, I don't know how many in the Willamette Valley uh, because there were some all over the state, and a few of those were fruit and berry wineries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a matter of just contacting a, a few of the wineries because <clears throat> to see if they would purchase grapes and um, so we did that and we sold our first crop in 1985 is when they first came into production 
because there weren't a lot of people that knew a lot about growing grapes uh, in Oregon and that I did have an academic background, we, uh, I got involved with what was then called the um, Oregon Wine Advisory Board and also the Willamette, uh, North Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association. Uh, and I worked and I got appointed to the uh, research or technical committee and we worked with the researchers at Oregon State mm -hmm. and from there I learned a lot about uh, grape growing and got to visit a lot of different vineyards to see what people were doing and yeah, well, we'll have to say we did make a lot of mistakes uh, <laughs> to begin with uh, but over the course of time we learned quite a bit from our colleagues and the university. So, Was it a conscious decision not to make wine, just to purely grow the grapes and sell them? Well, on the day we planted our 32 initial acres, we were the fourth largest vineyard in the state. Wow. <laughs> uh, and that was going to take all of our time. So uh, it was a conscious effort not to get into the wine making part of it just because that's another business altogether and we needed to be successful on our farm 32 acres out of the 250 was not the entire farm so we were still doing other sure. farming sure. practices uh, and so the Eola Amity Hills was purely good luck when it came to looking for land was there an inspiration to be there well, we did a little research uh, there were some pamphlets or publications put out and we talked to a number of wineries on what they considered a good site. Mm -hmm. So there was, wasn't just luck, we did do some research on what we were looking for, soil types, uh, uh, sun exposure, uh, you know, that type mm -hmm. of thing. So. And so once you were in the Amity, once you had this location, it turned out to be what you were hoping it would be? Oh, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, over the course of the years, what it still is called uh, Seven Springs Vineyard. It's one of the preeminent vineyards in the Willamette Valley. So uh, I think I had a part of that at least. <laughs> <laughs> I chose the site and planted the grapes and farmed them for 25 years. Seems like pretty good ownership. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your um, early relationships with other grape growers in the area? Well, one of the original grape growers in the area was uh, the Castiles at Bethel Heights, and they were very helpful. Uh, they had used the same, or they had bought their property from the same management company that we had used. Um, and then I think in 1984 they started their winery, but prior to that they were very helpful in telling us, uh, you know, some of the things. Uh, also, Myron Redford at Amity was helpful. And there were a number of people at the same time um, that we were um, that were planting just like we were. Because this management company actually put in several uh, vineyards at the same time. And we got to know those people also. So they were all newbies just like us. And the, the old timers only had five or six years experience. So there, there wasn't much there either. And that was one of the reasons for joining the uh, at the time called the uh, North Willamette Wine Growers Association so we could meet more growers and uh, see what they had to say. 
kind of all on the same learning curve at right. the same time. We were all on the same learning curve. There were very few farmers at that time actually growing grapes. So you talked a little bit about it, but was there a, if you came into the process not really knowing anything about growing grapes, how was that, the learning process from not really knowing grapes to planting a vineyard? Well, that's why we relied so much on the management company in the first couple of years. Um, and then we, got, we bought every book or we, that we could on grape growing and, um, you know, and studied the books and talked to the people and, you know, we're self-learners, so it wasn't like we're just sitting there guessing all the time. We did have uh, some inspiration from, from other countries and whatnot. Sure. At what point did you feel like you had a grasp on it? Oh, it took about 10 years before we really figured out uh, the best way to farm that particular piece of property and the varieties that we were growing there. And some of it was market forces. Um, let's see. Our first grape sales, uh, Chardonnay, which is the old clone that everybody took out, and now they're planting the new one, uh, was our best seller. And behind that was Gewürztraminer, which was that uh, 10 acre piece that we had. As a matter of fact, our first Pinot Noir that we sold uh, was tied to the person buying. They wanted the Gewürztraminer, but we told them they had to buy the <laughs> Pinot Noir also, and they paid us $400 a ton for it. And it was, that's when we figured out you really couldn't make money uh, growing grapes unless you either raised the price or raised the yield. And we worked really hard on getting the price up over the years. So you talked a little bit earlier, you talked about your, uh, your master's degree in psychology. Um, how has your academic experience kind of influenced your farming and grape growing? Well, my academic experience, well, I don't know if the psychology part helped much, except maybe dealing with winemakers. <laughs> but the, uh, it just showed me that I had the ability to learn things, and I could learn from reading or going to classes. I took short courses. I took actually one of the short uh, first short courses that Chemeketa taught. Uh, was a, another grape grower that was uh, offering the course. Uh, you know, it was a non-credit, but it was a workshop type mm -hmm. thing. Um, and at that time, the uh, Wine Growers Association had published a little pamphlet on growing grapes in Oregon, and so that was helpful. So, but it's always a learning process. And um, today, I belong to the American Society of Enology and Viticulture, uh, and they just have their annual meeting here in Portland. And so I've been involved, and I've gone all over the world uh, as a representative of Oregon or of Live to um, uh, different grape growing regions to see what they're doing. So I guess the academic part is that I knew I could learn <laughs> and that books were probably a good place to start. How appropriate. We're in a library. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when, you, uh, when you make those kind of trips now, do you feel like you have a lot to teach. Are you? Do you feel like you're still learning? Do you feel like some of well, both? Well, both. Uh, you're always learning because there's always some new scientific uh, evidence that comes out about the relationships um, between the environment and the plants. Uh, we're dealing with things like climate change now, and how's that going to affect the different varieties that we have? Also, I have you know 35 years experience in actually growing the grapes. Uh, 
one of the nice things about owning your own vineyard, uh, different probably from the academic side, is that you get to prune the same plant every year and you can see how it responds to your manipulations. Um, you can see what you can do little different trials and treatments in your vineyard and see which is the best uh, for your particular situation. So. So you're talking about climate change. Um, this is a question I was going to ask a little bit later, but as long as we're talking about right. it now, what do you see happening here in the Wyoming Valley or in Oregon in general over the next 10 or 20 years? Well, uh, Dr. Greg Jones is probably the expert on that. What I see happening here is that bud break, uh, bloom, and some of the phenological stages of the grapes mm -hmm. are getting earlier and earlier than they, they have in the past. This year we had the uh, earliest bloom that we've ever had. Uh, some vineyards it happened at the end of May, first part of June. So if that trend continues, uh, one thing about Pinot Noir is that it's extremely adaptable to a very narrow range of climatic conditions. And as it gets warmer out, we're going to have a different style if we continue to grow it in the same places that we are. That's one. The other is, I don't know, there's broader things or, uh, you know, that might be more catastrophic than uh, what's it going to affect wine grapes. Sure. If there's no snow in the mountains and there's no water and we can't grow food, then what, does, then what are you going to drink your wine with? <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, when you talk about uh, Pinot, different styles, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, uh, Pinot Noir has grown in many places around the world, but it seems to do best where the climate is just marginal for it to get ripe. So what happens, and this happens in any grape variety, is that ripening isn't a singular event. There's a lot of things that happen in the berry that aren't uh, concurrent. So like you, you need to have sugar to produce alcohol. You need to have flavor compounds, but they develop independently. So what can happen in a warm climate with a cool climate grape, like Pinot Noir, is that you can get sugars that are, that are very high, which would translate to a high alcohol wine, and the flavors might not be there yet, or the acid might not be correct. So okay. all of those things develop independently, which is one of the reasons that you select a variety for a particular climate, is to try and get those things to sync together, and that's when you're gonna get your best uh, product. So then would it be, you'd be, we'd be producing Pinot Noir that would just taste different or would we, would, or would we phase Pinot Noir out entirely? Well, I don't think we'll ever phase Pinot Noir out. It's the signature grape of Oregon. Sure. There are other varieties that might be uh, promising and there's uh, some wineries that are working with that. They may plant Pinot Noir at different elevations to get the cooler temperatures. Uh, but it's hard to say. A vineyard is a long-term project. It's 30, 40, or 50 years of production. So what you plant now, you also have to think about what it's going to be 30 years from now. And that's really when they start coming into their peak. So I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, we'll have to wait and see. You'll be around. I probably won't. So. We're always interested, especially with the grape growers. We're always interested in what they think about the kind of the future of Oregon wine with the 
as, as temperatures go up. Right. Well, it's not just temperatures. It's going to be the availability of water. What mm -hmm. if the rainfall patterns change? A uh, number of the vineyards are not irrigated. Some are, but even if they are irrigated, are they going to have irrigation water? So if, you know, and, it, and on and on it goes. So sure. it's not just sure. a variety or a preference or something like that. It's, we're talking about more serious problems. Sure. Changing gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier uh, Chemeketa. Right. Uh, how did you become involved with Chemeketa and, and your role in the, sort of developing the wine program? Well, that's, that's a good question. And that started in 1999. Um, let's see, I planted in 1980, so I'd been doing the vineyard for about 20 years. And we found out that as the vineyard got larger, it became more difficult for me to do all of the farming practices that I did before. Mm -hmm. So I started by hiring part-time help, the tractor drivers and whatnot. But if you wanted to keep a good person on, you really needed to give them full-time work. And when I gave them full-time work, that was work that I was doing, I had more free time to do other things. <laughs> so I needed something to do. Uh, also at that time in my life, uh, I was going through a divorce. There were uh, questions about whether the vineyard was going to be sold and uh, whether I was going to get an income off it, and I needed a job. Uh, Schumacher was advertising for a viticulture position, and I had experience in developing vineyards, uh, good academic background, mm -hmm. uh, good aftermarket learning, if you will. Uh, and I'd also taught at a junior college before. I taught at Lane mm -hmm. a couple of terms, a psychology course, but I had done some college teaching. Uh, so I interviewed for the position. It looked like a good fit. They were, it was night classes. Uh, what they didn't tell me, well, they did tell me that they started with nothing. Yeah. And they had this property in West Salem, and it was covered with trees or uh, scrubby trees, and they wanted to build a winery, develop a program, a curriculum. Uh, they had nothing. Essentially, they had me, the instructor, and they said, well, what does the industry need? do it. Uh, wow. So I had to figure out what classes we would teach, what the curriculum would be. Uh, you know, it's a two-year course. Uh, how are we going to develop the Viticulture Center, which is now the Northwest Wine Studies Center? Mm -hmm. How are we going to design the winery? What grapes are we going to plant? How are we going to clear the land? Uh, so it was, the, it was just given a blank slate, if you will. That's and pretty said, incredible. Well, I was also farming my vineyard uh, during the day, and at that same time, I was the, also developing the live program. So that was, we started that in 1997, so it, they all overlap. Yeah, I was pretty busy. <laughs> uh, so how did you develop the curriculum? Well, we, first thing we did was we went toward similar programs. Uh, the only ones that were really available at that time uh, we're in California, Napa Valley, mm -hmm. and then the one in Santa Rosa, uh, down there, uh, their community college system. So I went down there and I actually went to Napa and I bought all their textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, online you could get their curriculum mm -hmm. and what it was. And we have an advisory committee with the, for the program, so I would meet with, I knew all the, the members on the advisory committee and also knew that from a practical standpoint, what is it that a person needs to know to, 
to be technically competent at growing grapes here in Oregon? And what scientific stuff do they need to know? So, um, so as just my contacts, my knowledge of the people in the industry, and uh, willingness to learn. I also went to Walla Walla. They mm -hmm. had just started a program there. It's quite a bit different. Uh, and, and came up with a two-year degree program in both one in viticulture and one in uh, and a separate one in winemaking. So who else was involved? Who, who was your advisory board? Oh, boy, that's going to jog my memory now. <laughs> well, I know Terry Castile was on the, uh, was someone we leaned heavily on for winery design and that, because they mm -hmm. just put one in mm -hmm. a few years before. Uh, Lowell Ford, uh, who is Eilahi uh, mm -hmm. Vineyards, uh, and also was a dean at Chemeketa. Hmm. Uh, but he started his own vineyard and winery. Uh, who else? Just other, the extension people at Oregon State University. We had one uh, uh, statewide extension person at that time. Uh, her name was, um, no, Carmel. Um, anyway, and she was, had her training in Switzerland. Uh, we had Ed Hellman, who's now down in Texas. I just saw him uh, the other day. Um, Mark Chin was uh, very helpful. So there were, there were a number of people uh, that I could at least talk to, but a lot of it was just my experience, too, and looking at what we could do. I wasn't that familiar with the bureaucracy of the college system, if you will. So, uh, But if you have a two-year degree, you have to take an English class. You have to take mm -hmm. a math, you know, how mm -hmm. it goes. So uh, once we got all of the basic standards for a uh, associate's degree, then we could plug in what was practical in the vineyard area. One of the things that we really wanted to do was we wanted students to have one full year's experience in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. So we set up the program that ideally now what they do is they start in the winter with pruning grape vines and they're assigned a block of grapes. <laughs> and they have to take care of those grapes all the way through to harvest. So. Wintertime they prune, spring they do the spring management, mm -hmm. but it's on the same vines in the same block. And then they're responsible uh, because in the fall they harvest them and then they turn them over to the winemaking students who follow the process through another year uh, uh, making the wine. And then recently they, they've developed a marketing program so mm -hmm. after the winemaking students are done they'll hand it over to the marketing students hopefully and sell it that's really cool yeah so started off and you were the the first and I assume only at the start instructor were there more instructors hired how did the program expand well uh, two ways one we relied on some adjunct instructors for I couldn't teach all the courses uh, obviously and and I wouldn't have wanted to because that's not a very broad uh, experience I sure. think for students so I taught the uh, vineyard practices classes, the general viticulture, and we hired uh, uh, somebody to teach a soils class uh, adjunct. We taught uh, someone to teach the wine appreciation classes. Um, and then we had a, and then Bar Barney Watson from Oregon State mm -hmm. University retired. He was the longtime uh, enology mm -hmm. uh, extension person at Oregon State, and we convinced him to come up here uh, to help set up our program and to teach the winemaking classes. He had uh, 
told me that he uh, wasn't interested in doing research anymore, but he really liked the teaching. And, and I had known him for years because I was on the research committee and we had a, as the Wine Growers Association and later the Oregon Wine Advisory Board, we funded their research. So, mm -hmm. and I was the president of both of those and, not, and just not just the research chair. So I had interactions with those people and we gave them money. So I got to, we got to know them. Uh, and so he was interested. He came up and he helped uh, develop the uh, wine side of the program. Prior to that, the best I could do was pl just place students in wineries kind of on an internship basis. Uh, and since I knew most of the wineries, uh, I could select the type of students that would fit with the type of wineries, if you will, because uh, some were more corporate than others. But uh, it worked pretty well. But once we got our, our, our own winery, we could really do a lot more there on campus. Yeah, so tell me about the, the kind of the beginning of the test vineyard and its, exp and its expansion into what it is now. Uh, okay. Well, the test vineyard, it's not a test vineyard, it's a, it, we call it um, student vineyard. Okay. Uh, it started out with about an acre, uh, well, when we, we didn't know how much property we had until we cleared the ground. And then we had an engineering study come in to uh, assess the, because they wanted to build a building, to assess suitable building sites. And they found out that most of the property was subject to um, seismic vibrations if we were to ever have a tremor. But there was, so there was one spot on the whole place that, would, that they could build a building <laughs> that wouldn't roll down the hill if there was an earthquake tremor. Um, but once we got it cleared, uh, it appeared that there were about eight acres that were plantable. But for the vineyard process, uh, well, what I did was I laid out uh, eight different varieties in, a, in about a one acre block. And we made each uh, block uh, or each variety big enough that we could make one barrel, at least one barrel of wine. And the idea was that they were going to make wine at least on a commercial scale. And you need at least a barrel to do that. Because uh, we didn't want to make wine in carboys or uh, glass mm -hmm. jars mm -hmm. or anything that wasn't real. Uh, so we started out with that first uh, acre, acre and a half. And we got some uh, vines donated from some of the local nurseries. Uh, and I planted several different varieties that I thought would be suitable for because I wasn't just stuck on Pinot Noir. I thought, we can grow lots of things here. We should have different varieties just so people can have experience with it. So we planted uh, Pinot Blanc, Vignet, Gamay Noir, Riesling, uh, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, several different clones of Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the initial uh, planting. And that's the ones that the students take care of nowadays. Uh, now. uh, over the years, because we had only an acre planted and there were seven more, uh, the school said, well, well, can't we plant the rest of it and then we'll just make wine and sell it and our program will get rich. And we thought, well, <laughs> I don't think it really works that way. But uh, so it was really more the administration that wanted to expand the vineyard. So we planted, uh, at their request, we planted, we continued planting, we planted uh, uh, four more acres of Pinot Noir and 
uh, three more acres of Pinot Gris, which were the two main varieties here in Oregon at the time. And those were what were considered our commercial block. And what we do now is we sell the grapes off. The, we don't make wine out of that. Uh, we actually just sell the grapes and it breaks even. One of the things that was a problem is that it's really difficult to take care of one acre of grapes um, because the equipment that you need uh -huh. uh, can actually take care of eight acres. And then who was going to actually do the spraying? You know, there's a liability issue with students handling pesticides and applying them. And, uh, and then there are certain operations that you really need a crew to come in and, and do. Mm -hmm. That uh, students two hours of once a week is just not going to get it done. So what that enabled the school to do is at least they had enough acreage and enough grape sales that they could actually hire a, a vineyard manager to do some of the tasks that were more timely or needed licenses or that type of thing. So that's worked out very well. And then the, he doesn't, uh, the current one doesn't uh, do much in the student block. He, he does do the pesticide sprays because there's really no way a student, I mean, I suppose they could, but they'd have to get a license and sure. it, it's a public property and it gets very complicated. So how many students were part of the program when you started? How many, how many students did you have in the original? <laughs> My first class, which was, uh, again, I didn't know a lot about community colleges at that point, uh, was a general viticulture class in the fall of uh, 1999. Or, or, yeah, and, and I walked in and there were 60 students sitting in the chairs. And I went, what? <laughs> Well, I didn't know that the administration would just kept bumping the numbers up. The, you know, class size is supposed to be, you know, 20 or 30, and then every when it got close, they'd just bump it up again, and they'd bump it up again. And I, so I walked in, and there were 60 people in there. And I thought, well, and I had prepared a little lecture, and it was a three-hour class, and I think 45 minutes into it, I was done. I <laughs> <laughs> goes, well, this isn't going to work. Well, this is just my first day, so it's just kind of funny. So I says, well, let's all just introduce ourselves. There's 60 people. I'll give them two minutes. I'll kill, you know, two hours. And that's what we did the first day, and, and actually they got to know each other, and it was kind of a nice experience, but it was just kind of like, well, I'm going to have to do more on lectures. But this was before, uh, before PowerPoint and all that stuff, so you came in with your little... Um, overheads, you know, that were all printed out there. And once you went through the stack, you couldn't like, okay, now let's Google this or Google that. You, <laughs> so you're just kind of stuck there. And of course, nobody had read any of the, uh, the assignment the first day of class. So it wasn't like we could talk about the readings or anything. So, uh, anyways. so after that, uh, the vineyard, the practices classes were pretty much limited to 25 students. And that's more of a practical matter if you've got 25 people running around eight acres. Uh, of course, I was younger then, uh, but it took me almost the whole two hours to get to each one of them at least once, just to find them out in the vineyard. You know, even though I knew where they were assigned and all that stuff, there'd be some down at the end of the row, some at the top of the row, and you know, just all over the place. Uh, so that was, we had to limit the size of those classes. Uh, the other ones are, are uh, like the wine appreciation classes. You can get 25 tastes out of a bottle of wine, so that's the limit. And so you, if you want two bottles of wine, you have to have, let 50 people, but that's too many people to, for an instructor to do. So 25 in a class seemed pretty good. And we, we offered the same, yeah, so that, that would have been their second year class, but we offered them every year so that you always had a, 
uh, you know, a first year and a second year going into it. Seems like there would have been a lot of people interested in teaching a wine appreciation class. How did you track someone down? Well, we had two people. Uh, we just, you know, we advertised. We found one person, Bob Soge, out of uh, Eugene, who actually had done a lot of, he was uh, into photography. He had taught wine teaching classes in Eugene, and he had a very extensive wine cellar. Uh, he just retired a couple years ago. And he was very interested in doing this. Uh, another one, uh, Patrick McElcott, um, who ran the Amity Wine Tasting Room over there in Sheridan for, for years, also applied. And uh, I think after we interviewed them both, I says, well, let's have one of them teach one class and one teach the other, because it, it gives a little more diversity to, uh, for the students, too, to have that type of thing. So you mentioned earlier that part of the, uh, the creation of the curriculum was trying to impart to all the students sort of a basic knowledge of what the, the basics they would need. Right. What were those basics as you've, as you've felt them? Well, and as I still see it, it's uh, evaluating your site. A lot of people that took the class uh, already had land that they owned. So it's a matter of saying, well, you have this land, you didn't look for the best vineyard site. Let's take a look at how are you gonna evaluate what you can grow here, what rootstocks you should use, um, what spacing, and so part of it was, you know, just starting from that um, was going, well, what do you need to evaluate the site that you have? Uh, what's your end goal? I mean, are you going to have a winery? Are you going to sell your grapes? And there are very, uh, and then doing a realistic assessment of the quality of the grapes that might come out there. Now there's uh, all kinds of wineries in the state. You, not everybody sells a $100 bottle of Pinot Noir. Some people you know, have a, 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 an average one, and grapes are suitable for different levels of that, that fit into different uh, uh, price points. So it's just where you sit in and, and what you want out of your vineyard. Uh, then, then there's the practical stuff after that is how do you plant it? You know, it's two to three years after you plant before you get your first crop. Uh, the grapes don't reach their peak till they're between seven and 15 years old. So you still have this juvenile period. Uh, what are some of the diseases and pests that you're gonna have to deal with? What's the best way to do that, given your location? Uh, you know, so it's a lot of the practical stuff too. Did you find that a lot of students were um so not necessarily unprepared, but maybe not quite, that you were giving them news they weren't expecting in terms of how long until they could have wine, how long until they could, until they could make money? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. We saved uh, also, uh, because I ran my own business, I knew all the, that. Um, so I saved that for the very last class. <laughs> and we actually have a, a agribusiness management, which originally was a, uh, vineyard business management, and then there was one that was uh, winery business management, but we kind of combined those, uh, where they have to do a business plan before they finish. This is kind of their capstone course. But they had to do a budget in my uh, fall class, because after we harvested, we still had to go till December, and, and then you, they could figure out, you know, how many pounds of grapes did they get? How much did we sell them for? They could go back over the whole year, figure out what the labor costs were, spraying costs, and then they had to prepare a budget for the next year. And I think that was pretty eye-opening for a lot of people. Did, did it, you have a lot of people who changed their mind, decided not to get into the industry? I've had 
uh, some. <laughs> yeah. And they said, I should have taken this class first. And I said, oh, then you wouldn't have come to any of the other ones. <laughs> but there were a few that uh, said, well, maybe there's some other way I can get into the business. I also had people take the classes that not only were interested in growing grapes, but were interested in part of the service uh, industry. So I had uh, real estate people take mm -hmm. the classes. I've had insurance people. I've had uh, equipment suppliers uh, and vineyard development people. What we've seen change over the, although we still get a large number of people who are interested in planting grapes on their own property, is that things have changed here in the Oregon wine industry and that we have more out-of-state owners and uh, so we have more vineyard management and development companies than we used to and they need to hire trained employees. So what you're seeing more of now than in the past are people who are interested in getting jobs with the vineyard management companies, mm -hmm. not necessarily with the wineries or the vineyards. Interesting. Uh, do you have any other, you kind of mentioned your first day of class, do you have any other memorable classroom stories that you remember? Oh. Or vineyard stories, I suppose? Yes, I, I'll have to come prepared thinking about that, but I probably do, I might come back to me. Okay, we're going to kind of shift then from Chemeca into live. You mentioned live earlier. Right. Um, and it was, uh, was there any correlation between uh, starting live and Chemeca? Was it just purely that happened to be at the same time? Was there any reason they were uh, interrelated for you? Uh, no. Live actually started uh, two years before I started Chemeca. There mm -hmm. was a group of local grape growers, uh, Ted Castile, Die Crisp. Um, uh, Dick Daniel and um, Mark Chin that met, uh, it was really an idea that, I have to go back a little bit more, uh, this extension agent that we had uh, uh, that I mentioned previously, this Carmo, had actually studied in Switzerland under um, a person by the name of Ernst Bowler. Uh, and Switzerland had a sustainability program. It's a little bit different than ours, but it listed uh, details of uh, what it would be, what you needed to do in the, a vineyard to become certified sustainable. In Switzerland, uh, if you became certified sustainable, you got a government subsidy. Mm. Here, that's, you know, that's just not American. Anyway, um, so he came over and gave a talk. And, uh, and I, I'm not going to speak for Ted on where he, whether he took that idea or whether he had it be, um, beforehand, but they had a list of standards. Um, and we were meeting and we, we Ted came, uh, used that list and he also used a list uh, from uh, Dave Jordan who was in New Zealand at the time. His pro and they were starting a sustainability program there in New Zealand. Now, New Zealand's program, if they want to market their wine internationally, they have to be sustainable. Mm. So they have some big carrots uh, on their sticks sure. in Europe and other parts of the world that we didn't have here. But we wanted to see if we could do it. And I've always been interested in sustainability. I grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> Mother Earth News was my main reading uh, <laughs> thing. And, uh, uh, and we wanted to do things that were sustainable on the farm. Uh, one thing we found out with our, the timber on our property is, uh, well, we had Dan Camp from Salmon Safe come around, and he at that time was certifying vineyards as Salmon Safe. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, when we started, uh, we periodically logged. I had 150 acres of uh, woodland. And uh, in that woodland, there was some old oak trees. But we found a forester that uh, did, uh, it was called individual tree management or something of that nature. Anyhow, he could, he was certified as uh, under the Rainforest Alliance as a sustainable logger. And so that was something we were interested in. Uh, he cut down the oak trees and sent them up to the barrel maker here, uh, or up in Lafayette. And, uh, and they were sustainable oak trees. And he says, well, why don't we have any sustainable wine to put in them, or grapes? Uh, we had salmon safe, but that wasn't quite close enough. Uh, they had to get back because I'm digressing and jumping around here a little bit, but that's fine. So we were meeting once a week, uh, and Ted had come up with this list of 40 different practices that were sustainable. Um, and we did it on a voluntary basis. We uh, had somebody who just retired from Oregon State University who had done a lot of our grape research. His name was Porter Lombard. Mm -hmm. And one thing about the program uh, from the very beginning was that we weren't going to be, as an organization, going out and doing and inspecting vineyards. We needed a, a neutral third party person to do that. Otherwise, we'd just be inspecting our own properties. Sure. sure. So he did it for free. We just paid his uh, expenses, and he did it for two years. Uh, but at that time, we weren't a formal organization, and, uh, uh, and we, we, we knew we could do it. We had 36 people that were involved, and they paid their $50 in dues uh, that year, and that helped pay for Porter's expenses. But the question was, well, where do we go from here? You know, We did it. It worked. Now what? So this would have been like the mid-90s? This would have been 97, 98. Okay. Yeah. So I, I wanted to know where do, where do we go from here? So it, uh, it occurred to me, at least at the time, that while well, they're doing it in Switzerland, they're doing it in New Zealand, wouldn't it be good if Oregon could actually certify their vineyards through an international organization uh, for sustainability? So uh, Ernst belonged to this, uh, Ernst Bowler uh, belonged to this organization called the IOBC, which is the International Organization for Biological Control of Noxious Weeds and Pests. Uh, and it's, uh, it was originally founded through the United Nations, but that's the group that wrote, the, they wrote standards for sustainable farming. And they had a section on grapes of which the uh, Swiss program was uh, uh, interested. And because the extension agent at the time uh, had a connection with Switzerland, I asked her to contact, you know, introduce me to Ernst so that we could see if the IOBC would endorse our organization and our standards. And they had this whole list of uh, things that we had to do. We had to incorporate. We had to become a uh, not-for-profit organization. Mm -hmm. We had to write standards, we had to have dues, we had to have third-party inspections. and So I thought, well, that's a good project for me to work on. <laughs> Little did I know at the time. Uh, and then they said, and you have to do this for two years uh, before you know, we'll even think about endorsing you. So we'd already done it for two years. I said, well, can you take those two years and at least give us one year credit for that? Uh, I applied to the IRS for 501c3. That was not an easy process. Uh, they don't just hand those out to anybody. 
And I had to convince him, well, what's his, he didn't want to know why we weren't organic. And uh, it was on and on I went. But anyway, <laughs> we do have an educational component, and that was the, what swung it uh, for us. And the fact that we don't, uh, that we have the independent third-party inspection, um, which means that we're not uh, self-promoting, mm -hmm. which is a different nonprofit type organization. But uh, so we're completely tax deductible. Uh, so uh, it was just all these little steps uh, that you had to go through. Um, I went and presented our program to the ILBC at their meeting in Portugal, and they seemed very impressed. Uh, then I went and presented it again uh, at their meeting in Greece um, a couple years later. They sent a couple of inspectors over to inspect our farms and then inspect our program and it met all their criteria so they gave, the, gave us the endorsement and they've endorsed us since 2000, and, uh, 2000 or 2001. So we had the international endorsement, which I think was critical for our organization to just say that this isn't something grape growers just thought up for themselves. Sure. Uh, there's some overriding body that's looking over our rules and regulations and say they make sense or they don't make sense or that's too self-serving or you're allowing too many chemicals. But there's just a, somebody looking over what we're doing. Um, so uh, since then, it's just sort of grown. The, the hard part about it is getting consumers interested in you know, um, the product or getting wineries interested in promoting it. Uh, and that's what they've kind of been doing the last uh, four or five years, where now they're certifying wineries uh, for using sustainable practices, uh, water management, energy use, um, waste stream, uh, you know, so it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's gone beyond just the farming uh, into the production part. Was, what was, the, was there an initial enthusiasm in the state? Did you have to? Uh, there was. Uh, there was always the complaints. I and mean, we didn't charge. I knew another thing in order to make it successful is that we couldn't charge people a lot. Uh, so I think our original dues were about $50, and then we raised them to 75 And now they're still uh, not very expensive uh, as far as a sustainability or a certification agency goes. Um, we, we got a grant from um, a couple of government agencies to help us for, through the first two years. But it's self, a self-supporting organization now. Uh, and the dues pay for the executive director and then there's a certification manager. So there's only two full-time people. Uh, the rest is still volunteer. There's a volunteer board of directors, volunteer technical committee, volunteer uh, stuff. And then uh, the inspections are uh, yeah, is a uh, pay-as-you-go type of thing. So uh, we found out that they really only need to be inspected once every three years. They're inspected the first two years, and then once every three years after that, they still have uh, document submission requirements, and they can be randomly inspected at any time, hmm. uh, so that you pay for your uh, the time of the inspector uh, at the time you get it, uh, which is very similar to an organic, the organic organization. They may do it more frequently, but not the full-blown on-site inspection. So. So in, in addition to the, the kind of Oregon ethos of low input, uh, has there, have you seen benefits? Have wineries seen benefits from being live certified? Um, from what I hear, they have, and that's a better question for the wineries. Uh, there are some wineries that have uh, embraced it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And it said it has open markets, uh, if, if you will. If they go out of state, for instance, and you, you go to a, 
you know, the, the big local movement now and the uh, free-range chickens and the no hormone beef and then you serve a wine, where's the wine that goes, you know, the sustainable wine that goes with that? And they go, well, yeah, we'd like some if it's any good. <laughs> and uh, of course, it is good. And uh, there's no reason sustainable practices wouldn't produce a good wine. Sure. Although we don't, as an organization, pass judgment on wine quality. That's, there's people out there that do that. But there are people that just do care about uh, the impact that their vineyards are having on uh, the the thing about sustainability, it doesn't just include the environmental component, uh, which is huge and something we're very concerned about. Uh, but there's also a social and an economic component to it. Uh, we want the wineries to be a part of their community, uh, to respect their employees. Uh, and so there's a human component there. And if you're not economically viable, you're never going to be sustainable. So. Uh, Sure. That fits into it, although we don't make environmental decisions based on short-term economics, but long-term. And so we're trying to get people to think long-term, like, yeah, well, I can spray this thing and it's, it'll save me $10. And I say, yeah, but 10 years from now, that chemical's not going to be available because this uh, pest will be resistant. So, mm -hmm. you know, how are you going to work, start thinking 30 years into the future? You know, these are long-term crops uh, instead of just what am I going to do this year? And I think that's changed the mind. The other thing that I wanted uh, when this program started, that, that it would be open. This is not going to be any secrets. So when we did hire our, <laughs> our first uh, full-time instructor, or our first full-time uh, director, I said, I want this all to be on the web and accessible to anyone. And he worked really hard uh, with a website developer. And right now, our program, if you want to know anything about it, you can go to our website. Uh, and you can learn anything about it. At the same time, we wanted all of the members' information confidential. So if you're uh, submitting, a, I mean, you're up for inspection, right, and you're submitting your stuff, the only ones that can see that are the inspectors. And then they're sworn to secrecy. Because we didn't want somebody to apply and then fail mm -hmm. and then be on our website. That's, sure. Because maybe it just took another year or two for them to, sure. to come around. So you can see the general stuff. You can see the list of criteria. It's all transparent. And we wanted that because the consumers uh, and whoever our critics need to see what, what we allow and what don't allow and what the rules are. It's grown from the 40 questions to about 400 now. And it's got a little complicated. Some you only answer once, you know, when you're planting. And, uh, but, <clears throat> but it evolves over time. And new regulations come out of the IOBC. So they have to keep up on that, sure. and, and it gets broader and broader. But I think it's good. It, at least, and we we also wanted that if somebody didn't want to join for whatever reason, they could at least look up there and see what practices would be sustainable, and they could go ahead and do them without getting certified. So, you know, what harm could that do? Sure. I was curious if uh, after the success of Live, if other states have followed and have a similar program. That's a very good question, and the answer to that is yes. We were the first state in the United States um, to have a certification program uh, for vineyards uh, in the United States, and I was the president of LIVE for several years, and, <clears throat> and we found out that there was a lot of interest from other states. 
So I went and I gave a presentation of our program to uh, the New York State wine growers, uh, Long Island and Finger Lakes, um, Virginia, California, Washington, um, Pennsylvania. I mean, every state in the uh, Union uh, now has uh, at least a winery. They don't all grow grapes. And they don't all make grape wine. Uh, but uh, New York now, the Long Island people have started their own certification program. Uh, Michigan is interested in starting one. Uh, California has two or three certification programs. We predate them, but they had their own things going at that time. Um, so there is interest in other states, and part of it's being driven by retailers. Uh, for instance, in New York, uh, part of the, they grow a lot of wine grapes, but they also grow a lot of juice grapes. And so some of the uh, grape growers uh, have both types, but there were a number of large retailers that uh, wanted to increase their sustainability products. Uh, one that starts with a W, and you probably know they're down the road here. Anyway, uh, <laughs> has increased their uh, sustainability profile, and so they wanted uh, all of their uh, suppliers to uh, subscribe to some type of sustainability program. So we see the pull coming not just from um, people wanting to do the right thing, which is how we started, more or less, to consumers demanding that type of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really refreshing. I like that. So, so yeah, I think we'll see others. Uh, Live has expanded to Washington. We certify vineyards and wineries in Washington, and we just recently uh, started uh, in Idaho. They have a small industry there and it's not practical for them to start their own program. We aren't an organization that's looking to be a nationwide or expanding, uh, but if somebody comes and asks us for some help, uh, and if it's feasible that we can do that, uh, then we will. I think uh, the Long Island people asked us if, if we could set up their program. They had well, the genesis of one started, but I said, hey, it's too far away, we can't. We have one full-time director, I mean, oh, how can we do that? So, so and I said, and it's really better because you have local problems and mm -hmm. local mm -hmm. environmental conditions if you have, you set it up yourself. Uh, the only difference is that, um, is that third-party oversight, that who's overseeing mm -hmm. their rules. And uh, I made that pretty clear to them that, that they need somebody, whether it's the university, the Department of Agriculture, somebody to uh, review their rules so that they don't look or appear to be self-serving. And of course, they could have just taken all of ours right off the website that's if was, they wanted it, yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Have, yeah. have you found most of them have modeled pretty closely? Some have, and you know, uh, some vary it according to their local conditions. Uh, we have uh, you know, ours no rain in the summer, they have a lot of rain, different mm -hmm. disease problems, different uh, labor uh, situations, so, uh, and they have to write things to be specific for that. So you, you mentioned, while we were talking off camera there for a second, you're talking about <clears throat> kind of growing wine in the, in the UK, and you, you've, you've, been a, you've been around the world, you've seen wine in other places, do you, foresee certain places becoming the next wine hotspot? 
Well, it's, that's an interesting question. I see wine being developed in a lot of different places. Who would have ever thought Texas or Arizona or New Mexico? Yet they've selected varieties and they're making a very quality product. It usually starts out locally um, with a local following, just like it did here in Oregon. And then if, if there's some national thing, you know, national trends, at one time it was anything but Chardonnay <laughs> for white, or uh, everybody wanted a glass of Merlot at one time, and now who does? So, um, you know, those things come and go. But if you have a good quality product and a local following, I think you can pretty much develop a wine industry anywhere grapes are suitable to grow. The big fad now, of course, is beer. You know, um, yeah, there's a brewery on almost every corner, <laughs> and it's partly is because it's not as hard to get into. I mean, you don't need to plant a vineyard to to, to start a brewery. So uh, we'll see. And we're seeing a resurgence in uh, distilled spirits. You know, there's uh, that's increasing. So I, I don't say that we're all becoming more. Uh, alcohol conscious, if you will, uh, but it's, uh, we like the finer things in life and, and there's a wide vari variety of them out there. So next hot spot for grapes, I don't, you know, could be anywhere. Colorado's got a nice little following in an industry that's uh, growing, so who knows? Might have a Colorado wine one of these days. What about outside the country? Outside the country is, wine is, uh, well in Europe, wine is is more part of their heritage than it was here. Uh, they didn't have prohibition, we did. Uh, places that'll have problems would be like Australia if, if we talk about climate change and the mm -hmm. rainfall patterns change or the heat changes, it'll be more difficult uh, to grow grapes there. Probably the biggest uh, new hotspot is gonna be China. There's, you know, there's a lot of people that live there. <laughs> And they grow a lot of grapes, and they uh, they're moving up socio-economically, uh, and they like wine. And wine. there's a couple of uh, vineyards uh, just outside of uh, Shanghai yeah, when I was over there, and they were uh, originally founded by the French, but they're uh, Chinese wine. I mean, they have it. So, and they have a lot of land suitable for growing grapes. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll find that on our store shelves someday. I don't know. <laughs> so it's come up during our talk that you were president of multiple organizations within Oregon. That's correct. Was that something that you set out to do? Was it something sort of a necessity? Or was it something that you were? Well, uh, it was something I was interested in. I always thought I was somewhat of a natural leader, uh, if you will. but. The first organization, the North Willamette Wine Growers Association, it was more or less who didn't show up to the meeting and they got elected on the board that day. But I uh, also understood I wasn't gonna be able to advance my business without knowing as much as I could about how it worked. And the only way to do that at that time was to get involved in these organizations. They're also a support group. Uh, I paid tax dollars. Uh, to the wine board uh, through my grape tax, and I wanted to have some say in how it was spent. So I got uh, involved in the research committee. We were giving money to Oregon State, so. So you've had roughly 35 years in the Oregon wine industry. 
and you've seen it grow from, like you said, a couple dozen wineries into 600 plus now and 900, right. 900 vineyards now. What, what has that been like? What has it been like to have a front row seat to that and be part of that growth? Well, I would have never thought that was going to happen. Uh, my original idea was I was going to be a farmer and grapes were my crop. Uh, okay. I also grew wheat and oats and I had timber and you know, it was a diversified farm. A couple cows and some goats and you know, it was a good life. Um, but seeing the wine industry grow, I think uh, one of the things that's kind of uh, interesting, I, I don't know, is that seeing the price of the wines get, become more, uh, the wines become more and more expensive and more and more top tier and everybody says we're world class and we're kind of forgetting that we're just a beverage to have with dinner and you don't have to sit down and, and have a hundred dollar bottle of wine and go ooh and all over it mm -hmm. you can say well you know I'm, I'm just having a pork chop tonight and I'd like to have a glass of wine with it and what would be a good glass of wine to have and it's not I'm not gonna spend a hundred bucks on it when I spend five bucks on the pork chop <laughs> so um, so we, we, we see more of that gets the press. I don't know if that's the reality. Uh, but it, so that's been kind of surprising to, to see that. And so it's becoming economically much more difficult to succeed the way I did. I mean, you can't just go out and plant five acres of grapes and sure. think you're going to make any money or start a 2,000-case winery with 600 wineries out there. Who, Oregon hasn't grown that much. <laughs> that we can sell it all out our back door. So we have to be in the, the national, international market if we're gonna do that. The only good thing that we have going for us right now is that Pinot Noir production, although in Oregon is huge, it's just a really a small sliver of over, overall varieties uh, that people buy in the United States. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're a big producer of a very smallly used commodity. Uh, which means we don't have to, if we can just convince, if we just doubled the number of Pinot Noir drinkers, there wouldn't be enough land in Oregon to, <laughs> to plant grapes. But that's just because of the, the size of the scale. And I think we need to look ahead. Where do we want to be 10, uh, 20, 30 years from now? Do we want out-of-state uh, corporations to be in here running our wine industry? I mean, that's starting to happen. Um, and dictating what our style and or, or what our uh, legislation or laws are going to be so uh, we need to we're at a point now where we're well, yeah we're all we're not all small family-owned operations no matter what the literature says <laughs> uh, but we're going to be going more corporate and that's just because of the economics of the situation and how we're going to deal with that as as an industry do you think we are approaching are, will there be a point when we stop growing in terms of numbers of wineries and vineyards? Will that number keep going up? <clears throat> well, I've seen it cycle over the years. It seems like we're, we have these five-year cycles where it's, it, it goes up and then it goes down a little and then it goes up again. We'll probably see more consolidation. Uh, we'll see bigger wineries buying up smaller brands mm -hmm. and maybe keeping the brands. I mean, that's that's what happens when, when you grow like that. And, uh, it's easier to buy a company than it is to start one. Um, so I think, you know, you'll, it'll just be interesting to see what happens next. 
uh, the price of land. I bought my land for you know, under 3,000 an acre, prime vineyard land. You can't touch it for 100 times that now, which is how I made money in the wine industry. <laughs> was the appreciation on my land values. I never made money on the grapes the whole time I was growing them. Even though I was getting paid some of the highest prices uh, uh, in the state, it was just, it's just so expensive to grow, plant the vineyard and grow grapes that it's difficult to make money just on the grapes. So uh, in wineries, you know, I, it'll be interesting. Once they get into the national market, it just changes the whole dynamics of things. You, it's no longer the people that come to your tasting room. It's mm -hmm. you have to be in this Dallas market, and if you run out of wine and then you're pulled from the list, you can't get back in again. So it's uh, you know there's a lot of pressure to have a product uh, in these distribution channels. But that's something more for the wineries to talk about. Uh, but I just do see that happening. And, and I have traveled uh, to most of the wine growing regions of the world and most of the wine growing, major wine growing regions in the United States. And you know, it's the same thing. Do you want to be local or do you want to be sure. national? And uh, some people are just satisfying, have their farm stand. Uh, thousand cases, is, that's a lot. That's three cases a day you have to sell. Uh, but they, you know, they have a party room and you know, it's, and that's what they want to do, that's fine. And, uh, but once you make, you know, it's not linear, it's incremental jumps. You go from a thousand cases to 5,000, then all of a sudden you, you've got a big problem. Then you, then you find out it's probably better to go to 20,000. And then maybe it's better to go to 100,000. So, you know, it's just where you want to fit in. Do you, do you find that the wine industry attracts a certain kind of individual? You know a lot of people in the Oregon wine industry. Right, and well, and, uh, we're all a little wacko. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it attracts a certain, you know, it's an inter, um, it's an individual type thing. So it, it attracts the type of people that, that like to uh, set up their own operations, if you will, entrepreneurs. Uh, at least originally, um, and so, and they they come in all sizes and shapes, you know. So, uh, we all have different goals. Mine was to raise a family in the country, uh, and it just so happened that I had other skills that could be used and uh, to my advantage, and and that's worked out good for my life. So, um, other people have a dream of making the best Pinot Noir in the world. Well, you know, there's only one. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just as good as the best. Uh, so there's only one best, and that changes every year uh, because the wine writers will tell you who that, what that is that year. Um, so uh, hard, hard to replace that number one. But it, you can make something so they do things like, you know, it's local or it's mm -hmm. it, the soil puts this flavor in it or, you know, something like that. But uh, so you see more people trying to get niches, if you will. Sure. So what segment can I hit? You know, I got a vegan wine. I don't use any animal products in it, or uh, I have an organic, or I have a sustainable. Uh, so now you're you're seeing people target niches a little bit more, and there's still people that want to distribute in all 50 states and live in the chateau and fly their plane to, uh, you know. France once a year, or, uh, and then on weekends in the Caribbean or whatever. So, uh, 
you know, the old adage, and you've probably heard this before from other people, is that if you want to make a little bit of money in the wine industry, start out with a huge fortune and plant a vineyard. <laughs> so that's, that's an old one. <laughs> but, uh, okay. All right, is there anything that I should have asked you about that you'd like to talk about? Well, I think that's pretty much my whole life story right there. <laughs> you know, we start when I was a kid or something. But, uh, you know, my first wine was Boone's Farm, Apple, in college, because uh, we could buy a case of it for $9. And uh, I've, I've grown accustomed to better wine since then. <laughs> Do you have a, a personal favorite? No. No? Even a personal favorite variety? Well, my feeling on wine is that it, uh, I, I consider it a beverage with meals. And so my wine choice is going to depend on what I'm eating and my social situation at the time. So, uh, and I like all styles and I like all varieties. I don't just drink Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Um, I like the wine that uh, the group is producing for my vineyard now. It, you know, it's got the two highest scores uh, uh, ever. So, uh, again, a good vineyard site. Uh, but I wouldn't drink it. At, with my hamburger, you know, and and the one I did drink with my hamburger would be the best one I had that night. So uh, I don't think there's any mystery or mystique about wine. It's a beverage, and it's a beverage that's meant to go with food. And if you separate those two, then you're kind of losing sight of what you really, what it's all about. All right. Well, that wraps it up for me then. Uh, before we let you go, I have to congratulate you on your recent. Wine of the Wine Person of the Year Award from Wine Oregon Wine Press. Well, thank you very much. Congratulations. It's, it's nice to be honored uh, by the industry or recognized at least after all those years that uh, I did all that volunteer work uh, with. And I got some pretty nasty letters too when I was <laughs> doing that. It's just like it was my fault they did that. <laughs> all right. So anyway, that that was a very nice honor to have. So I know it's been a good career at Schmeckett. I think they have a strong program there. And they'll be training future wine growers and winemakers and marketers. That's our biggest uh, need right now in the industry. And I think I'm going to enjoy retirement. I'm still doing a little consulting with Live. I do some of their out-of-state inspections because I have the free time to go to Idaho, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, still involved in some of the um, different organizations. But we'll see how long that goes. Nice to have options. It is. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. You bet. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.